Well, it is Christmas Day, and we have two Christmas texts um, before us for both uh, the first service this morning as well as our second uh, service. And the first um, passage that I want to read with you and draw your attention to comes from the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament. So it's the book of Matthew, chapter 1. And if you were here um, last Sunday, you'll remember that we dealt with the first 17 verses of uh, Matthew chapter 1, where we dealt with um, the, the genealogy or the family tree of Jesus Christ and looked at a number of things there. But one of the most interesting things is, as we saw, um, a number of the questionable figures in the family tree of Jesus Christ, what I call skeletons in the closet. And we explored that a bit um, with the understanding that there's a reason why these individuals are in the family tree of Jesus Christ to present to us the truth that they were very much in need of a Savior to come, to deal with the sins of their lives, just as we are. So we looked at that last week, and now I want to draw your attention to um, the verses that come after that, just uh, verses 18 through 25, which present us with a rather simple and brief and unadorned account of the birth of Jesus Christ. Let's draw our attention to these words. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Jesus. Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Jesus. Perhaps, And I think there's a good percentage chance of this, that this is the most well-known name in all of the world. You don't even have to be a Christian. You could be a Muslim. You could be a Hindu. You could be a Sikh. You could be a person who embraces some other great world religion. But you have probably heard, even if you're part of these religions, of the name Jesus. Jesus in the Greek language. Yeshua in the Hebrew language. Both of them meaning the same thing. Savior rescuer, deliverer, the one who, according to Matthew 121, is the one who has come into the world to save his people from their sins. See, that's, that's good news. And that's the good news of Christmas. Now, when you take a look at the... the um, the story here, remember I said that when, when, before we read this account together, that this is, um, uh, this is a rather simple and under, um, uh, unadorned and I would say understated 
description of the birth of Jesus Christ. You would think that as big as Christmas is today, and all the weeks leading up to Christmas, and given that this is much of our heritage, at least historically in the West, you would think that, that you would find you know, large descriptions in many chapters devoted to the conception and the birth of Jesus and his arrival in this world. And yet, really, what you find is something rather brief, as I said, simple, unadorned, understated, and humanly speaking, um, something that does not capture the significance of the crisis that this figure, Joseph, not Jesus' biological father, but his legal father, the crisis that he is facing with his betrothed, the one to whom he is engaged, namely Mary. Because the crisis is this, and the story is very clear, that Joseph and Mary are engaged to be married. They are, the old term is betrothed. And Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant. And the thing that Joseph understands very clearly is that this child is not his child. So all he can do is surmise that Mary has been with another man or other men. And so the Bible says being that he was a righteous man and a just man, he figured that, um, you know, what he needs to do, what they need to do is just, uh, this is a point that Mary has gone too far. We need to end the relationship. No doubt he was disheartened. The Bible doesn't get into all the emotions of Joseph at this point, only that he decides that this relationship has to end, and he wants it to end quietly. Because while he's a righteous man, he's an upright man, morally speaking, he's not a graceless man. He's not going to put Mary's nose into this dirty business as he figures it. And so they're just going to kind of end the relationship quietly and go their separate ways. So that when we look at the story, I mean, the whole story just kind of, well, it, it, it just kind of cries out, doesn't it? It cries out for a resolution. It, it cries out for some form of just divine intervention, intervention from above, and actually that's exactly what we find. God gives Joseph, by means of an angel, an incredible dream that basically says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because if she hasn't been with another man, actually the life within her has come from God himself through the Holy Spirit. That is an astounding thing. It's hard to believe. Must have been hard to believe for Joseph. You know. Now I don't know if you know this, but you know, we read in the passage that that um, Joseph received this dream ultimately from the Lord. Now I don't know if you know this, but but when you read later on, and I don't know if you've read through the Christmas account this year, but actually when you read um, uh, elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, you, re you, you realize that Joseph just didn't receive this one dream. He received four dreams in all. So the first dream is this one. And then the second dream is after Jesus is born, Joseph and Mary are warned by an angel to leave Bethlehem and flee where? To flee to Egypt, which is once the house of slavery for them, which has been a really humiliating thing for them, but they had to leave in order to go to Egypt to do what? To flee wicked queen, uh, King Herod, who did not like the idea of a rival king and wanted to destroy the Jesus, destroy the Messiah. And behind all of this, we find Satan, 
satanic influence at work. Because if there's one thing the devil did not want to have happen is for Jesus to survive much longer after birth. And he worked through Herod, so they fled to Egypt. That's the second dream. The third dream is where they are called to go back to their homeland after Herod died. And then the fourth dream is where they're to go on and move to Galilee. And Jesus grew up then in Nazareth. Four dreams. Four dreams. Interestingly, what we find in the Bible is that there are certain times, and you even find this sometimes today, God does not work ordinarily in this fashion, but sometimes extraordinarily where he reveals certain things in crisis periods of people's lives by means of a dream. And he certainly did that with Joseph. So this, this, this angel, this angel in a dream comes to Joseph, and what does he say? He says, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her, again, is not of any man, but it's of the Spirit of God. So he receives that dream. Now, when you read a story like this, there's many times you start, if you, if you just stop and you meditate on the passage, which is, again, very understated, you start wondering, you start imagining, well, well when Joseph received that dream, how did he feel? Was he, was he unsettled? Was he, was he, was he afraid? Was he, was he perplexed? Was he... Was he relieved? Was he relieved? Don't know. All we know is that this, um, this, this happened again at, at a, a very important juncture in Joseph's life because just as far as he knew, Mary was unfaithful. And he's, he's ready just to, to end the relationship. Now, um, we have to understand something here. And, and I pause a little bit because I want us to understand the, the gravity of what is happening here. They're engaged to be married. Some of you here are engaged to, to be married. Now, you kind of put yourself in the situation. What would you do in a situation like this? Right? So, so... We have, we have to understand something about betrothal or engagement during the days of Jesus. It wasn't, it's, not the, it's not quite the same way that we deal with engagements today. So typically what happens today is usually it's a younger couple and they get to know each other and then they fall in love and they court or date or whatever word you want to use there and they do that for a number of months, maybe even a couple of years and then they finally decide, well, you know what, we sh we're going to get married. We're going we're gonna to go the long haul for this. So they decide to get married, and what they do is then they, they announce this to people around them that they know, and then they set a date for the marriage, and they basically, when they become engaged, they just basically commit each other. They're not going to date or they're not going to court anybody else. We're committed to each other, and we're planning for our wedding. Okay, that's usually how an engagement goes today. But during the days of Jesus, it was a bit different. It was a bit weightier. There's more gravitas, as we say, to an engagement or a betrothal. So this is usually how it worked, where um, a young couple, and usually they're quite young during the days of Jesus, they, they would get to know each other within a family context. And, family, and then finally there was, there was a decision that they were going to be married. But first of all, you have this engagement or betrothal. And what happened during the days of Jesus is that this betrothal, and this is an important point, this betrothal would involve vows. 
like marital, like marital vows. So they didn't wait to their wedding to make vows. It's in the engagement itself that they made vows. And they made vows in the presence of family and friends, usually in one of the parents' homes. So it's a very simple ceremony, and they exchange vows in the presence of family witnesses and the, the, the witnesses of friends. And once the vows were made, they would, the young man and young woman would go back to their family homes, and they really wouldn't start living together as a formerly married couple until months later, sometimes even up to a year later. And it's then once they started living, live together, they would then consummate the marriage. So the point being this, is that when Mary and Joseph are betrothed or they're engaged together, they have made, just like in a wedding ceremony, they have made formal vows to each other. So that when Joseph discovers in the face of these and in the wake of these vows that Mary was with another man, as he thinks is the case, how else is he supposed to interpret this when she's pregnant? He's like, well, the vows are broken. And so the Bible says being a just man, he says this, this relationship is, is over and though righteous and just, he's, as I said, he's not a graceless man. And so he's not going to stick her nose into that dirty business. And he's just like, okay, we're, just, we're, we're finishing this relationship. We're going to go our separate ways. And it's at precisely at this very dark moment, in this very sad moment, that God intervenes. And he intervenes by means of a dream where angel reveals to Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And it's this, this dream that changes the course of, of, really think about it, not only Joseph's life and Mary's life, but our lives as well. Because in this dream, God is revealing the fundamental purpose for why the eternal Son of God came into this world, conceived by the Holy Spirit in time born of the Virgin Mary. What is that purpose? To come into this world as both human and divine in order to, as his name represents, to save us from our sins. Take a look, if you still have it overhead, take a look at verse 20 or if you have your Bible with you. Look at verses 20 through 23. Let's get into the wording of the scripture here. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, now notice, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. You've heard it said from this podium many times. It's the most frequent command in all of the Bible. Don't fear. Don't fear. Joseph, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is... And it's like, what? It's not from any man. It's from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. So Joseph and Mary don't even get to choose the name of this child. The angel says, you're going to call him Jesus. Because it's going to get at the very center of his office, of his calling, to be savior, to be deliverer. So she's going to bear a son, you will call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What prophet? The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before. The prophet Isaiah pointed forward to this particular time in redemptive history. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
Now here, the angel is very specific about what he is saying. And he's saying two very important things about Jesus. Number one, he is going to be, and this is fundamental theology, he's going to be human, but also he is going to be divine. This very simple statement that I made gets at the heart of the gospel, of the good news, and it is the good news of Jesus, that the eternal Son of God has taken on human flesh, one person with two natures, human and divine. And we look at that and, and we say, this, this, this is incredible. It's something that has not happened before in history. It truly is the, 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 the mystery and somewhat the perplexity of Christmas because the Bible never goes into detail how exactly this all took place in a, in a scientific way, only that it is the case. And it presents us, the whole of the Bible presents us not only with the fact of this, the mystery of it, the perplexity of it, but also the necessity of it. Because when we read this, if we go beyond the mystery of it and we ask ourselves the question, well then why, why did it happen that way? Why did the eternal Son of God take on human flesh? And if, if you were here last week, you remember we looked at that, right? We looked at a catechetical statement that made the point that Jesus needed to be human. He needed to be exactly like you and me because it's you and I who sinned. It's human nature in us that sinned. And the human nature that sinned had to make satisfaction for that sin. Kids, that's why Jesus had, became like us and he identified with us. He had hands and heart and lungs and hair and a face just like us, just like us, except without sin. Okay? But then you say, well, why did Jesus also have to be God? Because we notice that Mary is going to give birth to a son, a human, but also this human is also going to be called Emmanuel, which means actually God with us. None of us here this morning, on this Christmas morning, can claim that. We're all just sinful human beings in need of a Savior. Jesus was not. He was Emmanuel. He was God with us. And he became God, the eternal Son of God in the flesh, because only God himself would possess the power to be able to receive the full brunt of the wrath of God upon human sin. But also, only God in the flesh would have the power to break the power of sin, the power of and role of the devil in our lives, the power of the lures of this world, indeed break the power of death itself to usher in eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the good news that we celebrate this Christmas. And then I want to leave you with one other thing. If you look at verses 24 and 25, it's very interesting that Joseph does everything possible in order to protect this very truth that I that I that I spoke to you about just now. Take a look at verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Now, now let that sink in a little bit. Joseph receives this incredible, if I may say, unbelievable dream, and he could have, he could have said, you know what, I, this was weird. I, you know, we've all had dreams like, oh, I don't. I don't think that's going to happen, you know, or, you know, um, just crazy dream. He could, have, he could have said that in unbelief. Or he could have figured, you know what, um, 
people, people aren't going to believe this. I might believe it, but, but people around me aren't going to believe it. They're going like, oh, so Mary's pregnant, and, and well, you're, you're not married yet. Well, yeah, well, you know, that which, the life in her womb, I mean, she wasn't with any other guy. That, that, that life was begun by God himself, by the Holy Spirit. And can you imagine the kind of laughter and unbelief? That he would receive around him. So, so when Joseph, when it says here that, that, that Joseph woke from the sleep and he did as the angel commanded him, he said, you know what, you go ahead and you marry Mary because the life in her is not from another man but it's from the Spirit of God. He believed it. And he obeyed it. That's quite something with this man Joseph. And then finally this, verse 25, it says, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So here's what's happening, to be discreet. He went ahead, did as the angel commanded. He married Mary, but he didn't have intercourse with her until Jesus was born. You say, why not? Didn't he have the prerogative? Didn't he have a right of a, as a husband to have intercourse with his wife? I mean, they're married after all. But he, he withheld from that. Now you think of the self-control that that took. But he said no to that. Why? To protect the very truth I just explained to you. That Jesus was actually not conceived of Joseph or any other man, but of God himself. And it was necessary for us in that way for Jesus to be truly human, divine, sinless, and thus the one who is exclusively qualified in all the history of humanity to save us from our sin. My friends, this is the reason for the season. Right? We live... We live in a Western culture where we, we have kind of, we, we've just kind of sentimentalized Christmas, right? And we talk about, um, we talk about season's greetings and happy holidays and all of this. And, you know, in a sense, that, that, that's fine. But in a sense, if you think about it, it completely misses the point of Christmas. And the point of Christmas is that the eternal Son of God took on human flesh. The eternal Son of God came down from above to this earth in order to lift us and in time, the whole of the creation to God so that we might become new people, what the Bible calls new creatures in Jesus Christ, all because of what Jesus did in coming as the eternal Son of God in human flesh. You know, the, one of the most substantive hymns that we have is Hark the Herald Angels Sing in Christian hymnody. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. So, so the most important thing that you and I this Christmas season could ever pursue is reconciliation with God. You know what that means? It means to come into a harmonious and beautiful relationship with God because... The Bible teaches us that what sin does is it separates us from God. It creates a, a state of dis, not harmony, but disharmony with God. And the only way that sin can be dealt with is for Jesus Christ to come and take the penalty and guilt and power of sin upon himself as our substitute so that we might have the occasion then to express faith in him and entrust ourselves to him so that having that sin removed we might come into this beautiful and harmonious and eternal relationship with God there's nothing more beautiful and there's nothing more satisfying and there's nothing more that ushers in human flourishing 
like that. That's the meaning of Christmas. And that's what we're going to explore in just a little bit of time after we have our time of refreshments together. So Merry Christmas. That's the gospel. That's the beautiful message of Christmas. Before we sing, let's have a word of prayer together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus into the world. And Lord Jesus, thank you too for as the eternal son of God, for condescending to us, bending down to us as it were to the point of taking on our flesh, for coming down to us in order that we, O God, might be lifted to you. What a sacrifice and what a beautiful, beautiful truth for us to embrace this Christmas season. Thank you, Lord, in a world where uh, many people are celebrating this Christmas without really understanding who Jesus was. Thank you for revealing himself to us and thank you for giving us this message this morning. We pray this all in Jesus, our precious Savior's name. Amen.